Well, it has been a busy week already here for New Community Church. I know many of you ladies were here yesterday for our women's conference, and I am so grateful for that. All the reports that I've heard were that that was just a great day of grand encouragement, and I'm so glad that your hearts were ministered to. I also want to say thank you to all of the, all of the ladies and all of the staff that made that event possible. I know a lot of work and, uh, and planning went into getting ready for yesterday, and I'm so thankful that it had its desired effect and that there was a good day of fellowship had by all the women who were able to be present. So thank you if you were part of making that event possible. You know, I know that we've been going along at a pretty good clip here in the Gospel of John since we returned after the summertime. In chapter 13, we've been taking 10 or 11 verses uh, pretty much every Sunday that we've been back in John 13. Uh, but today, I want to slow down just a little bit and zero in on verses 34 and 35 specifically of John 13 because the truth that Jesus has given us in those verses is absolutely profound truth that requires us to stop pay attention and apply. So today our message is going to be just a little bit different as we slow the dial way down and take our time to make sure we understand some really important things about the expectation of Jesus Christ for our Christian walk and we'll go ahead and dive off into it together. You know, over the first half of John's gospel, the theme of Jesus's love has progressively come into focus for us, has it not? You know, in the first half, that theme of His love for us, it, it culminated really in chapter 12 in a conversation, a public conversation, that Jesus has with His Father there in front of everybody. And, and that conversation between Jesus and God the Father in heaven really serves for us in the Gospel of John as representing the final words of Christ in public. And, and here is essentially what Jesus said in his final public message as he communicated with the Father. It's a statement that brings the nature of his love into crystal clear focus. If I can summarize it, these are the words of Jesus. He says there in chapter 12, I can't, I won't dodge the horror of this coming hour because my Father's glory is on the line and will be displayed as I am lifted up and then draw all men to myself. See, in that statement, we find out two things about the love of Jesus. On the one hand, we find out the nature of His love for His Father. He was absolutely devoted and committed to seeing the plan of God the Father through. But on the other hand, we also see the nature of His love for you and me, that He was willing to be lifted up so that He could draw all men to Himself. And right there we see the grand reality on full display that John has been building up to for 12 chapters, that the love of Jesus Christ is a love that is unlike any other kind of love. And then we turned the corner into the second half of the book. We got into chapter 13, and what did we find? We found the person of Jesus Christ literally clothing himself in that love and stooping to wash the feet of his disciples, putting for us into graphic perspective and on display the nature of what his love actually looks like. And having demonstrated the uniqueness of his love, Jesus now in chapters 13 through 17 goes on to give his final words to his followers in a section that is known as the farewell discourse. And right at the beginning of that final statement from Christ are these verses in 34 and 35 of chapter 13, where Jesus once again circles back to this idea of his unique, incomparable love, but this time he applies it to us. And that's the reason why the title of our message today is A Love Like No Other Redux. Now, a redux, for those of you who are still brushing up on your modern vocab and vernacular, yeah, you're welcome, <laughs> is a style term. See, it refers to a particular kind of fashion that perhaps had been popularized at some point in the past and then had fallen out of style, only to be brought back around again and re 
popularized in the present. See, things like bell-bottom jeans or platform shoes, those are reduxes, a phenomenon that we can all sincerely hope does not get to applied get get applied to certain kinds of styles that I'll just let your imagination run wild with for a moment. See, some things they're better left dead. <laughs> but other things that happened in the past need to be brought back around into our awareness. And this idea, this theme of the love of Christ that has already been so clearly explained and illustrated for us in the first half of the chapter here, Jesus brings it back around into the present and he puts it into our laps and he tells us to try it on for size. See, this is a text where Jesus brings our attention back to the style, the manner of his own love and he hands it to us and says here, now you go and put this on. You wear this style of love. See, considering his love, you and I, this is the expectation of John 13, 34, and 35, we must now be clothed in the love of Christ ourselves as we demonstrate that kind of love towards one another. And that, friends, is really important because as we saw last week, it is our willingness, our newfound ability to love as he has loved that is and stands as the key litmus test to prove the reality of our discipleship. And so for us here together today, nailing this down, really understanding it, applying it thoroughly to our lives is so essentially important. So this morning, that's the reason why we're slowing down. I want us to lean in together to try on for size, so to speak, the, the love of Christ, and to see how we measure up. Now, today is going to be a little bit different kind of message. There's going to be a number of different texts that I will take you to to explain this concept and seek to apply it to our lives and to our church. But the bottom line is that we're going to walk around this idea of the love of Jesus and examine four different aspects of this love that we are called to put on display in our life so that we, we can truly say we understand it and know how to apply it. So let's go ahead and dive off here into verse 34 and begin by looking at the importance of this love, the importance of this love. And you can see that right in the way that Jesus introduces the idea for us there in verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you. See, friends, this is not just another commandment. This is not just another biblical law that is given to us. Now, what Jesus is wanting us to put our attention on here is that this is a new kind of a commandment. You could say that this is the constitution for the Christian. This is the living law that is meant to undergird and embody everything about who we are. This is to give meaning and purpose now to every thought, every deed, every action that defines the reality of our Christian walk. This isn't just a little sidebar that Jesus pulls over into here for us to understand. No, it is the very bedrock of what our Christianity is supposed to look like. It is to undergird everything. It is now the foundation for what Jesus expects out of us. Now let's key in on why it is that I say that. You can see there that term new that Jesus uses here for this command. And the fact that he calls it a new command connects this statement into a much broader theological universe of other new things that are being initiated here in this upper room. You see, there in that upper room, Jesus was doing a, a number of things. He primarily was forming, forging, if you will, a new community of believers who were all being given access to a new kingdom via the new covenant. And it's for that new community of people in the new kingdom through the new covenant that are here given a new command. And this command is therefore attached to all those other new things that Jesus is inaugurating there in that upper room. 
And so for us to really understand the importance of this idea of a new covenant or a new command, we first must go back and understand the reality and the importance of the new covenant that Jesus is giving to us here. If you recall, the centerpiece of that new covenant is God giving you a new heart that is fit to house His Spirit. Now, some of you know very well what the new covenant is, but others of you might be scratching your head wondering, what is the new covenant? Well, the new covenant is defined by its newness in light of what Jesus was going to do in human hearts as opposed to what the old covenant had been. I mean, who amongst us that have studied the scriptures could forget the promise that is given to those under the old covenant found in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Remember this verse and hear it with me. Jesus says there to his people in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart. That's the center of the new covenant. And a new spirit I will put within you. And here's how I'm going to do that. I am going to remove your old heart of stone, that dead, cold, callous, hardened heart, And I will give you now in its place a heart of flesh capable of living, breathing, and beating for and with me. But that's not all. He goes on to say, in addition to giving you a new heart in the new covenant, I am also going to put my spirit within you. See, that is the ultimate promise of the new covenant which Jesus has come to initiate. And Jesus is moments away in chapter 14 from explaining the fact that even though he's going to leave them, he is going to put his spirit within them, a direct fulfillment of the new covenant. You cannot miss the connection here between the inauguration, initiation of the new covenant with this new command. Because, friends, here's why all this matters. You cannot hope to fulfill this new command if you have not first received and experienced the fullness of the new covenant, if your heart has not been transformed by God, if you still have a heart of stone rather than flesh, and if the Spirit of God does not dwell within your heart, you cannot hope to fulfill the new command that He is giving to us here. The only way that this new command can be possible is if first you have had a heart transplant, a work that can only be accomplished by God Himself. That is the significance of it. But here's the flip side of that truth. If you have received the new covenant, if you have been given a new heart of flesh, then there is a new expectation that not only you can do, but you will do. And that is the fulfillment of this new command. See, here's the reality of what's going on here. If you've been given the Spirit of Christ on the inside, then that spirit within you is now going to color and shade everything that you do on the outside. If love lives in here, that's the new covenant promise, then love must be shown out there. That's the new commandment. You see the intricate connection between these ideas? See, that's the reason why the Apostle John goes on to explain this new commandment further. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Listen as I read it for you. John says there, a new commandment. Where'd you get that, John? Oh, from Jesus back in the upper room in John chapter 13. He's going to explain it further. A new commandment I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining, whoever says he is in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. What's he saying there? He's saying if, you're don't, if you don't have the capacity, the ability, the willingness to fulfill the new command, you've proven that you know nothing of the new covenant. But on the flip side, John goes on in 1 John 2 to explain, whoever does love his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. You see, it's this characteristic of an external love flowing from the reality of an internal heart 
that is the reason why Jesus is pointing here to your love as being the proof of your newness. Love out here is proof of love resident in here. And that's why we say this is so very critical for us to understand. To help us understand and see how critical this idea is to Jesus, let's just go back and remind ourselves of his very first message to the Ephesian church. Remember over the summer, we went back and looked at Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and the very first church out the gate that Jesus comes and talks to is a church that is absolutely crushing it as it comes to churchianity. They are doing such a good job. They are rock star church-going kinds of Christians. I mean, they are just absolutely doing everything that should be done with the exception of just one seemingly minor little thing. Jesus says, this I have against you. You have lost your first, what? Love. You remember. And the penalty for that, the consequence of it, because you are loveless, Jesus says, I am going to come and extinguish you. I'm going to cancel your charter your right to exist because you are not exhibiting out here the reality of what I know I've done in there. See, though they had everything, they had not love. And so they proved themselves to be nothing. See, friends, the the point I'm trying to make here is that this new command here, again, it's not just one more command amongst many. No, it is to be the ethic and the ethos of what a church is to be. It is to be the foundation of your new life in Christ that is the thing that undergirds everything about how you now walk with Him. Based upon the reality of you having received and experienced the fullness of the new covenant, if you've got the Spirit of Christ within you, then the love of Christ must be manifest through you. That's the importance of this. If you are one with Jesus, then you're going to start to look like Jesus. So what does Jesus look like? What has John been telling us now for 13 chapters? He is the very embodiment of the love of God for us. So then, what should you and I be looking like? We too should be looking like love. Do you see the connection here between these concepts? Do you see the importance of them? So now that we see and understand and have wrapped our arms around the importance of why this matters so much, let's get down into how we are to love. What is the biblical definition of what love is? We can all say it's important, but we don't know what it means. (laughs) So, So what does it actually mean? We've got to define our terms here. Well, you keep reading in verse 34 there. Jesus says, here's the essence of my expectation for you. It's that you love one another. But we can't hope to apply that until we first understand the definition of what it means. And defining that term for us in this culture is very important because love, it is a big deal in our society. You know, the theme song for American society today could be boiled down to that old tune from the Beatles. All you need is love, 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 right? And I I realize that song might not be so old for some of you, and I apologize in advance. (laughs) But I, I, I looked up the lyrics this week out of curiosity, and yes, I did count the lyrics. And do you know how many times the singer croons, love is all you need? 40 times. That's all he says through the whole song, except for this point that he comes down and makes. You ain't, you can't, you, there's nothing you can't do if you have love. See, that's, that's the culture's expectation of what love is. I ask you, what does that even mean? Hogwash, no offense to music lovers, but the Beatles... And our culture, they've gotten this idea of true love completely wrong. You see, our culture has defined love in a really messed up way. They've defined love by making it more general, by taking off all of the restraints. If you want it and it feels good and you can do it, well then, go for it. And that's love. And here's the culture's definition of love. You've seen this floating around on billboards and signs. Love is love, which is the stupidest, most inane definition I've ever heard. Don't those people know? It breaks the laws of language. You cannot define a word using the word. It doesn't work. You see, that's how they think about it, though. 
take off the restraints and whatever it is to you is what it is. That's their definition. It's the most sophomoric thing I've ever heard. But it's not just bad logic, see? It's also really bad theology. Because true love isn't general. No, true love is highly specific and tightly defined. No, not all love is love. Why? Because 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 tells us this. God is love. He's the definition of what love is. And so we've got to define our understanding of the term according to him, not to us. And so if you want to know what biblical love is, then you've got to look back at the person of God because he is the truest, purest expression of what love truly looks like. And it's, it's got to be defined by him. You see, God is the standard of love. And that is true with or without humanity. If there had never been a single man created or a woman, God would still have been love because love is essential to his nature. And you say, well, how is that even possible? How could God be love if there was no object to receive his love? Friends, that's why it's so important that God be Trinity, that God be a triune God. See, he is three in one, and love flows, therefore, from the Father to the Son to the Spirit, from the Spirit to the Son to the Father, from the Son to the Spirit, from the Son to the Father. As Jesus is going to say in John 17, 26, look, you, Father, loved me before the foundation of the world. You see, love is an essential part of God's character, and it has always flowed back and forth within himself. And as Jesus is going to explain here, the love that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is now the love that has been shared with you. And we now, John 17 is going to explain it, we're going to get caught up into their intra-Trinitarian love for one another. So, therefore, we have to ask, what does their love look like for one another? If their love for each other, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the fullest, truest definition of what love is supposed to be, what does it look like? And here is the answer that is given to us by Scripture. You see, the love amongst the person of God looks like an intentional choice by each member of the Godhead to prioritize the interests they call it glory of the other members. And that's why Jesus keeps talking in these four chapters that are coming at us about the glory of God. Father, glorify yourself through me. me. When the Spirit comes, he will glorify me, Jesus says. And I, when I go to my Father, will glorify him. All three members of the Trinity intentionally choosing to prioritize the interests and the glory of the other members. You see, that's what true love looks like. After all, did not Jesus just finish saying in verses 31 and 32 of chapter 13, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. And if God is glorified in Him, then God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. What's that a statement of? Love flowing back and forth from father to son and son to father where both of them are preoccupied with the magnification of one another because they love one another. And so they will put their own interests aside, so to speak, Philippians chapter 2, for the fulfillment and glorification of another, of another member within the Trinity. Now, I know that that raises all sorts of questions about Trinitarian theology, and we cannot get into all of that right now. What I want you to see, though, is the care and the concern and the active choice that they make on behalf of one another, even though they are still one with one another. But, but that is what love truly is. It's an intentional choice to prioritize the interests of another party. And so what do we learn as we look at the manifestation of love within God? We learn that love... It is not a feeling. Oh, sure, as human beings, love impacts our feelings, but it is not identified with our feelings. Now, see, true love is a choice, as defined by God, specifically to prioritize the interests of another. And if need be, to submit myself to and sacrifice for the accomplishment of those purposes. That's the biblical definition of love. 
Me prioritizing your interests and seeking to serve you. That is the kind of love that you see God exhibiting within himself. It's also the kind of love that you see God exhibiting for and to you as well. See, where, where mankind's love is sinful, selfish, sensual, and isolating, God's love is sacrificial, serving, and comprehensive. And that, friends, is the reason why we say that it is a love unlike any other. This is a definition where if we understand it and apply it, would and will have radical impacts upon the nature of our marriages, the nature of our parenting, the nature of our relationships within this body, and the nature of our relationships to everybody else. If we understand the nature of what God means when he gives us this command to love one another. Define it according to his terms and his nature rather than your own. So in light of who God is and what his love looks like, what does that look like in practice now? Well, that's a question that is going to speak to the extent of his love. And that's where Jesus goes next here in verse 34 of chapter 13. He says, here's how this love is to be manifested amongst you. Just as I have loved you, so also you are now to love each other. See, Jesus repeats his command, but he gives us a new and a fresh aspect for how we are to go about doing it. He defines the idea for us, and then he applies it to us. How are we to love each other? It's as he loved us, and that's the standard that is just, let's be honest, so very hard for us to embrace and to comprehend, is it not? I know it certainly was for the Apostle Peter, for instance. Do you remember the conversation that Peter had with Jesus? Matthew chapter 18, around verse 21 to 35, where Jesus had, had just finished admonishing his followers to be willing to forgive each other. And in their culture, the, the Jewish law prescribed that, that you had to forgive at least three times. The logic went, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. But fool me three times, wow, if I still forgive you, that's really being long-suffering. And Peter, being the brash spokesman that he is, pipes up, yeah, but how many times do I have to forgive? Aha, light bulb, seven times? See, Peter's really proud of his answer, which is essentially drawn in rhetorical crayon. He, <laughs> he takes the rabbi's number, three, he doubles it, and then he adds one. And he thinks, Eureka, that's really gracious. And Jesus responds to him and says, no, Peter, it's 70 times seven. You turn the other cheek. The implication is you keep on forgiving. That doesn't mean there aren't any consequences, but your heart is still willing to forgive without end. See, it's seven, which is the number of perfection, multiplied by 10 and then times itself again. The point there that Jesus is making is that a divine love, it just keeps on churning, just keeps on going, looking out for the best interests of another despite the worthiness or the unworthiness of the recipient. And you say, why should I do that? It's because, verse 34, that is what has been done for you, you see. That's the reason why we should do it, and that is a high bar for us to clear. Just as Jesus' love began with his love for the Father and then was delivered to us, so too now does our love begin with Christ, preoccupied with what he's done for us. And then it flows to others as well. So then, how, how did Christ love us? What was the extent of his love? Let's just dwell on that here for a few moments together. And I would encourage you to just tuck these verses away and remember them when we get to the Lord's table here in a few minutes this is how your Jesus loved you. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. You, you know it. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, then, at that moment, Christ died for us. See, he loved us despite our clear and objective unloveliness. Matthew 5, 44, there's another one. Jesus, here's how far he took his love of the unlovely. Far enough that he could tell us to love our enemies. And then to prove the fact that he actually did it, he throws his arm around Judas, of all people, in this chapter and calls him my friend. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we're told, 
the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, his love was not about what he could get. It was about what he could give. A Christ-like love is therefore not about getting. It's about giving. Philippians chapter 2, 5, here's the extent to which Christ loved you. And this one is really the final, the final nail here that, that pins it down for us. Have this mind among yourselves, the Apostle Paul says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, if anybody deserved not to love, it was him. But no, that's not what he did. He did not, account, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking, get this, the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death, even the shameful death of a cross. See, when his willingness to serve began to tread on his inalienable rights and prerogatives, he didn't just serve until it stopped suiting him. No, he served until he had sacrificed all. That is a love that is unlike any other kind of love. And those are just some of the ways that Jesus has demonstrated his love towards us. With a love that outran our unloveliness, with a love that was willing to serve and sacrifice despite enormous cost, with a love that cannot be dislodged but endures and lasts forever. My friends, that right there, that is the gauntlet that has been thrown down before us. And it's why we say when we, we consider his love that it is a love unlike any other that now we too have been called to love in a way that is unlike any other kind of love. Here's what that translates into. Your love for each other, my love for you, our love for one another. It's not a, a warm and fuzzy buzzy that we feel. Because, because if it was, then there'd be a lot of reasons along the way for us to stop loving See, there are times when my feelings aren't what they ought to be. There are times when the circumstances of loving are just really not convenient for me. There are times when my perspective on someone else's desirability to the relationship with me, it has changed. There are times when my plans don't conform themselves to the reality of you, right? If defined by us, biblical Christ-like love, it is never going to happen but christian love see this is why this is so important it's not a feeling it is a choice a choice to concern myself with your good even when you're bad a choice to serve and sacrifice when you may be proud or selfish a choice to keep on offering kindness and grace even when you've made it clear that you want none of it that's what sets christian love apart from worldly love it looks like Jesus' love. See, friends, we, we've seen here the importance of this standard. We've seen the definition of what it means. We've seen the extent to which Christ took it and now calls us to take it. And so what does that actually look like in practice? Well, go with me to verse 35, because here we see the fruit of this love. By this, he says, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, let me just say this as we turn the corner here into this final point. I am so very grateful as your pastor that this is a church where a message like this can be instructive rather than corrective. You know, I, I was talking to a man recently who is relatively new to this church, and he, he kind of asked me a trick question. He said, what one word would you use to describe new community church? I'm thinking to myself, well, is it the word that, that I would hope would be used or the word that I think would actually be used? What are you asking for? And so to get some clarity, I turned the question around and asked it back to him. Uh, good trick. <laughs> and his response was this. New community church is a loving church. And friends, I'd have to say that I, that I agree with him from everything that I've experienced and known with you. But see, even though we may already see the reality of what we're being commanded to be and to do here present within our midst, that doesn't mean that, that our work is just done now. Now, that's the reason why the Apostle Paul says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, let us continue to consider how to stir one another up to what? Love and further good deeds. You see, there's always room for us to grow, and that is what we are seeking to do here together as we examine a text like this. But verse 35, 
Jesus gives us here a couple of points that are worthy of our consideration as we consider what the fruit of this kind of love should look like in practice. All right, the first thing that I want you to notice here in verse 35 is this. The arena for our love ought to be primarily oriented towards those who are in the church. See, in Christ's expectation, the church, as Pastor Jerry said it to me earlier this week, it is to be the headquarters of love in a sin-cursed world. The front line of of Christ-like love is to find its primary expression here within this body. You know, sometimes churches, they can get this backwards. They think that Christian love starts out there in the community and ends up in here. That to truly show the love of Christ, I have to go engage in community service and do good things, all good things. Go down to a homeless shelter or serve at a a soup kitchen or, or get involved in my community. And all of those are good things, but none of those things are given to us here as the primary means for the demonstration of the love of Jesus Christ. See, true Christian love, it must and always begins in here. That's why he says, as you love one another. That's what he's talking about here. And then, and only then, is it manifested out there. Now, let me be very clear here. Demonstrating the love of Christ via community service or outreach, that is good and that is necessary. But if you're doing those things to the exclusion of loving your brothers and sisters within the body of Christ, then your emphasis is on the wrong syllable, so to speak. See, you have to be first and foremost concerned about the mutual discipleship, edification, admonition, serving and sacrificing for each other before you can go out there and demonstrate that same heart to the world. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says it this way. So then, as you have an opportunity, let us do good to everybody, but especially to those who are in the household of God. See, the expectation of Jesus here is that the primary field on which our love is to be played out is the relationships that you have within the body of Christ. And then, if that is true, that love, it expands and overflows and explodes from these walls in order to impact the community. And that is exactly what Jesus says here in verse 35. The second thing that we need to notice here about the fruit of this kind of love is that the effect of it here in our midst ought to have an evangelistic impact as other people see it. You see, when other people, unbelievers outside the church, peek over the fence, if you will, and poke their head in the door and see what's going on in here, there should be one thing that they notice about us above all other things. It's our love, Jesus says, that should be both obvious and attractive to them. You know, there's a lot of things that we could be known for as a church, good things that we should be known for, necessary things even. The volume of our singing, it ought to be heartfelt and passionate. The boldness of our proclamation, it should be unashamed. The depth of our theological understanding, it should be deep. Our commitment to the truth, it ought to be unshakable. But there's one thing that Jesus says here that we should be known for above everything else, above all other things. What should be most and first obvious to people is our passionate love for each other that causes them to sit up and take notice and say that whatever's going on there is unnatural. That is otherworldly. And I've, I've never experienced anything like that. And when they come to us and ask, what is going on there? There's one single answer that we are required to give. Having been much loved, we love much. Because he loved us, we now love each other. So come, my friend, come to Christ, join our midst, and experience a love that is unlike any other. See, that's the way that this is supposed to look. That's the way this is supposed to work. Which brings us to a third observation. What should this kind of love actually look like? See, the practice of our love should be active. The kind of love that Jesus is calling us to here in these verses, it, it, it doesn't just happen. It's as we are faithful to apply ourselves diligently to caring for one another and making each other a primary concern And that's the reason why Jesus says here, by this, by by what? There's got to be something there that is actually being done. See, there's an expectation of activity. 
By this, your fulfillment of this love, as it relates actively to each other, all men will know that you are my disciples. And so, so we have to ask ourselves, well, what does that look like in practice? Well, people, there are hundreds of commands, literally, in the New Testament for what this is supposed to look like in practice. We call them the one another commands. Those are the most obvious. Those are the obligations that we all bear for one another to demonstrate true Christian Christ-like love for each other. I can't go through all of them because lunch would burn in every oven. But let me just go through a couple of them for us here so we get a flavor of what this is supposed to look like here within our midst. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Our love is to be practiced as we forgive each other complaints against one another. That's how our love is to be seen. Ephesians 4.32 tells us that our love is practiced as we are kind and tender to one another. That's one of my favorites. And the reason why is because it comes in a context of principles that govern communication. See, there's all kinds of communication that is negative and bad, and it's in the face of that kind of communication we're being told where, where there is criticism or harshness or ungodly speech, that Ephesians 4.32 calls us to be kind and tenderhearted. That's what this looks like. Galatians 5.13, there's another one. Our love is put on display and it is manifested. It is practiced as we serve one another, as we find needs that exist in the body and say, how can I meet that need? It means that there's a heads-up awareness when you walk in the doors as you engage with each other in conversation, that you're actively looking for ways to serve the other party rather than yourself. Why? Because that's the way Jesus loved you. Why would I not love you that way? See, that's the expectation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, we're told that our love is directly expressed as we pray for one another. You know, we've got this really slick new church center app and it just pushes out notifications kind of like all day long. And, and those notifications, those aren't things that are meant to just be ignored or silenced and turned off. See, those notifications are prayer requests that we're sending out to you as a body. Why? So that you can bear one another's burdens and come alongside each other in prayer and lift each other up. And then when you see the brother or the sister, you can say to them, I have been praying for you to the only God who can solve your problem. How is it going and how is your faith? See, that's the expectation for us as a body, that we would pray for each other and, and bear burdens in such a way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5.14 tells us that, that our love is to be seen as we admonish those who are idle, encourage those who are faint-hearted, as we help those who are weak, being patient with all those different categories, and doing good to everyone, we're told. That's what Christ-like love looks, look, looks like in the church. In short, this love looks like 1 Corinthians 13. We've already read it, but now that we're at the end, let me read it again. Love, love like Christ loved, is patient, it's kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love, true love, like Christ loved. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things, and it endures all things. And then Paul goes on to say, look it, if I have everything, but I do not have love, I am absolutely nothing. See, friends, that is the expectation for us as a body is that we would love with a love that is unlike any other. Why? Because we have been loved with a love that is unlike any other. That is what Jesus expects would characterize us as a church. And that's always been the expectation of our Lord. You know, it was about a hundred years after John wrote the Gospel of John that this kind of love that Jesus is calling us to was still very much alive in the life of the early church. In fact, the early church father, Tertullian, records that it is mainly a love so noble amongst us that leads many who are themselves animated only by hatred, he said, to put a brand and a mark upon us. They see us and note the reality of our love for each other. And here is what those pagans say of us, Tertullian says. Do you see how they love one another? Do you see how they're ready even to die for one another? 
See, friends, this marker of love, it has always been the proof of life that we truly belong to Jesus. Our willingness to embrace and practice this new commandment being the proof that we have experienced and known the new covenant. And so I ask you this morning, what, I wonder, will be said of us? May it be this, taken from 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another, for no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, then God abides in us, and His love is perfected through us. May that be the epitaph of this church. You know, this morning we've got a wonderful opportunity here in the conclusion of our time to celebrate and to remember and to rejoice in the amazing, magnificent love that Jesus Christ has delivered to us. You see, this new command, as we've been talking about, to love as He loved, it was introduced on the very same night that Jesus initiated the new covenant. In fact, it was Luke chapter 22, verse 20, that tells us, After they had eaten, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is poured out for you and is the new covenant in my blood. You see, the whole point of the communion service is that we would celebrate this expression of love of Christ for us, that we would calibrate for whether or not we are walking in obedience to this new command that is to undergird everything that we are. For having been much loved, are we willing to love much in return? See, this is an opportunity for us to evaluate ourselves, to, to try on for size the love of Jesus Christ to remember what He's called us to, to remember what He's done in us, to repent if need be, but more than everything else, to rejoice and proclaim to the ends of the earth and to a watching world the magnificent love of Jesus Christ. That's the point of the communion table. It is meant to be a full gospel picture of divine love for us. The body that was broken, the blood that was shed, so that you and I might be justified yesterday, be sanctified today, be glorified tomorrow, because this is what the love of Christ has wrought within us. End-to-end -end salvation. Full-blown display of love. A love unlike any other that the world has ever known. And so together, I call upon you all now to rejoice in it, to remember it, and to celebrate the love of Jesus Christ that was shed to cover our sins. I'm going to ask the men to come forward now. And as they do, they'll be distributing the elements of the Lord's Supper here. And I would encourage you to just take a few brief moments as they distribute these elements to examine your own heart, to confess any sin that may be there, and to truly take a moment to rejoice in what you know Jesus has done on your behalf. He has brought to you the reality of new life. He's put His Spirit inside of you. And now He's issued to you a new command that He expects we all would follow. So let's examine ourselves thoroughly and let's rejoice in the love of Jesus Christ that has been shown to us. Amen? Our Father God, we do thank You for the love of Jesus Christ that has been manifested to us. You clearly have sent Him with the intention of loving us well. And indeed, He fulfilled every aspect of what you expected from Him. And now we know your love, for we have seen its greatest, its greatest picture composed in the person of Christ. And Father, we thank you for that marvelous, majestic understanding that is now ours of who you are 
And so, Lord, having been loved much by Christ, may we be those who are now known for turning around and loving each other much. Father, we thank You for the work that You have done in bringing us to Yourself through faith. We thank You for the opportunity that is ours and the joy that is ours to now turn in gratitude, considering what we have received, and to give and show it to each other. What a privilege is now ours. You have won us that right. You have brought us to this place through the breaking of your body and the shedding of your blood. It was the only way, the only truth, and now we have the only life. And for it, we are most grateful as we remember that sacrifice on our behalf today. We see and know your love for us in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, we're told in Scripture that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took first the bread. On that night when Judas did his devilish deed, the Lord Jesus, with love in his heart, gave thanks. And he broke the bread and said, this is my body, it's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. In the same way, we're told, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim my death until I come. Let's proclaim that glorious reality together. Father God, our hearts rejoice in what you have done and who you are. Our hearts rejoice in who we now are in you. We know your person. We know your love. We see your son. We know the light. We walk in it. And so may we truly love our brothers and sisters having seen the light of Christ and having known his love. You are the definition of love for us. And may we now walk in you and follow you and manifest that same love for each other. Father, thank you for making these things possible. We rejoice together and praise your name. In Jesus' most precious name, we pray these things. Amen. Well, the men are going to return to the back, and they're going to collect the cups. I would encourage you to stand together with me as they do. And we'll conclude our time and our communion service by reading about this wonderful truth regarding the love of Christ found in Romans chapter 8, verse 38. Here's how long the love of Christ is applied to your account. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus our Lord. With that knowledge, go in grace this week.